nummer uh, van de nieuwe plaat van Shannon McCardle. Uh, de plaat heet A Touch of Class en dit nummer heet Country Music. De plaat komt uit op vrijdag 24 augustus. Dat is ook de datum van het eerste concertje dat daarbij hoort. Ze zullen er waarschijnlijk nog een paar volgen deze herfst. En moesten we besluiten om dat concertje ook op te nemen, dan ga ik jullie daar hier natuurlijk een stukje van laten beluisteren in een van de volgende afleveringen. Shannon McArdle is geen country plaat. Een vriend van mij heeft hem beschreven als folk pop indie, uh, dus een beetje van alles. Maar dit nummer is gebaseerd op een gedicht uh, genaamd Country Music van de dichter Michael Robbins uit zijn bundel The Second Sex van uh, 2014. En het gedicht werd gepubliceerd in de New Yorker magazine ook in 2014. En Michael had gevraagd aan Shannon, uh, wil je alstublieft dit gedichtje op muziek zetten, want ik hou van jouw muziek. En zodoende is dat dan gebeurd. Maar straks nog een beetje meer over Shannon McArdle. Nu even de theme music van Nieuw Amerikaans en dan even praten over het einde van de vakantie. Nogmaals welkom bij aflevering 4 van New American van deze zomer. Um, een podcast over leven en werken en cultuur in Brooklyn, New York City. 
Ja, het is 18 augustus 2018 en het voelt al een klein beetje alsof het einde van de zomervakantie nabij is. En dat betekent natuurlijk dat we weer eens moeten gaan denken aan school. En dat is natuurlijk omdat, uh, sommigen van jullie weten dat wel, ik ben ook uh, leraar hier aan een middelbare school in Manhattan. Uh, de school heet Beacon en Beacon High School is nogal een speciale plaats, uh, vind ik, waar ik af en toe wel eens iets over wil vertellen hier uh, op deze podcast. Uh, ik denk dat het wel interessant kan zijn voor Belgen en Nederlanders om wat meer te leren over het Amerikaanse schoolsysteem. Nu, om te beginnen uh, is het goed om te weten dat de meeste high schools in New York City niet echt lijken op de high schools die jullie kennen van uh, tv-series en films. De meeste zijn eigenlijk redelijk klein, die hebben 400, 500 studenten per school. Alhoewel, er zijn er ook wel een paar die uh, enkele duizenden studenten hebben, maar dat zijn uitzonderingen. Mijn high school is wat ze hier noemen een liberal arts and humanities high school met 1400 studenten. En alhoewel het een public high school is, en dat betekent uh, gesubsidieerd door de staat, is het ook een selectieve high school. En dat betekent dat om uh, geaccepteerd te worden moet je een aanvraag indienen met hoge cijfers en ook een interview. Het schoolsysteem in New York City is heel erg complex. Het is namelijk het grootste schoolsysteem van de Verenigde Staten. Met een miljoen studenten, zeg maar van kindergarten tot 12th grade. Dus van kindergarten all the way up through high school. About a million students. En dat is natuurlijk wel moeilijk om te organiseren. En daarom wordt het ook uh, af en toe een beetje een bureaucratische nachtmerrie. Op 5 september uh, ga ik weer naar school voor de eerste schooldag. Dan zijn er nog geen studenten. En dan op 6 september komen de studenten aan en beginnen we les te geven. Dus min of meer, net als in België, hebben uh, leraar hier uh, twee maanden zomerverlof. Maar nu moet ik wel erbij vertellen dat ik uh, regelmatig naar school ben gegaan deze zomer om wat te plannen, om wat uh, comitéwerk te doen en met andere leraren samen te komen om wat te bespreken over hoe we het gaan doen in het volgende schooljaar. Wat geef je dan voor les, vraagt u zich misschien wel af. Wel, ik geef uh, wereldgeschiedenis aan de jongsten, dus uh, ninth grade, Uh, dat zijn dus 14-jarigen. En ik geef ook uh, les aan de seniors. Dat is het zesde middelbaar. En aan hen geef ik een klas genaamd Understanding China. Uh, dat is geschiedenis over modern China, uh, 20e eeuw. En actualiteiten, nieuws. En in die klas uh, discussiëren we uh, hoe Amerika moet reageren op de opkomst van China sinds de jaren 80. Dat is eigenlijk een, een klas die gebaseerd is uh, in economie en politiek. En natuurlijk in de volgende afleveringen ga ik wat meer praten over mijn school, mijn leven hier, mijn werk hier. Maar het is weer tijd om nog eens even terug te gaan praten over de artiesten Shannon McArdle. In het midden van de jaren 90 ontstond er in de stad Athens, Georgia, de stad waar ook R.E.M. vandaan komt, een band met de naam The Mendoza Line. En na enkele jaren spelen en optreden in het zuiden van de Verenigde Staten is de band verhuisd naar Brooklyn, New York. En uiteindelijk in het jaar 2000 is Shannon McArdle uh, fulltime gaan schrijven en zingen in de band The Mendoza Line. En rond het jaar 2007 is de band jammer genoeg gesplit en is Shannon uh, een paar solo records gaan maken. En daar ga ik het nu even over hebben. 
in een interview dat ik vorig jaar in de zomer van 2017 heb opgenomen. So I'm in my studio here with uh, my friend Shannon McArdle. Hi Shannon. Hi Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And you? I'm good. Thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, so um, we've known each other for a while and we played music together, um, which has been great. Um, do you remember how we met? Was it through Adam Gold? Was it through... I, I remember there is a bar in Crown Heights that you would go to sometimes after school. Do you remember this when you were teaching in Crown Heights? Sure. We, uh, and I remember you're asking me, you don't remember me, do you? And so I guess I don't remember where we met. Yeah, it was like that teacher bar or something. I think. Did I meet you through Adam? Through well, the... Um, the practice space, the the womb, whatever it was the called. The womb? <laughs> the bunker? <laughs> the bunker. Um, yeah, eventually we um, we started playing there. But I, I remember now that, that where I saw you at that bar. So um, you recorded an album last summer. Um, tell us how that went. It went great because I recorded it with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Clint Newman. Um And it was a wonderful, relaxing experience. And Marcel Good made an appearance or two. Um, that's your wife. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm aware. And I, j I couldn't be prouder of it. And I think it sounds amazing. It's called A Touch of Class. And it truly was sort of certainly the most stress-free experience I've ever had recording. So it was stress-free. What does that mean, like, in relation to your other recording experiences? Uh, there was minimum travel involved. Um, and I got to pay you guys in beer and a little cash every once in a while. Um, that was really nice. Um, and just coming in with you two and saying, hey, here's a song. What are your ideas? And just feeling that I didn't necessarily have to have this this finished product when I came in, which was really nice to get your feedback and also just to feel like we were truly working on it together. Whereas in mm -hmm. the past, sometimes I feel that perhaps I'll put I'll put down a few tracks or whatever, and then um, someone comes in and works a bunch of magic. Not that you guys didn't work a bunch of magic, um, but a lot of magic <laughs> happened together at the same time in the same room. Right. And that is something pretty new to me. So it's more collaborative than previous Certainly experiences. Was, yes. Mm -hmm. So speaking of the past, um, you are a seasoned musician. You've been in a business for a while. Meaning I'm an old bird. You're an old bird, uh -huh. that's right. Um, so, so when did you start playing music, like writing songs? Well, I, let's see, would have been 1996 or 97. Um, and you probably know this, but, uh, I was married to a fellow named Timothy Bracey. We had a band together. So you were in a band called, uh, the Mendoza Line. Yes. Were you in it from the start? I was not. He started it with, um some buddies, uh, namely 
Pete Hoffman and Margaret Maurice, who was his girlfriend and at they, the time. They'd been making albums already at the time. They'd made uh, one EP at the time when okay. I met them. Yeah, in Athens. Did they have a record deal? Yes, they were on Kindercore in okay. Athens. Yeah. All right, and so um, without going into too much detail, then you joined the band. Sort of. What? <laughs> well, so Tim was moving to New York with uh, Paul Depler, who was also in the band, and Margaret. And um, before he left, he gave me an old acoustic guitar and said, you should write songs. And my brother, Philip McArdle, who you know, um, showed me a few chords. And I wrote my first song really the same day I learned my first few chords. Something dark is racing in my head. She's the daughter of a social life. Her daddy taught her how to do it right. She holds a cigar in her right hand. You used to hate smoke, but now you understand how it feels to fight an urge. Something dark is racing in my head. So, um, I really like you as a lyricist. Um, were you already writing at the time, um, before you started writing songs? Well, I, w I was an English major at the University of Georgia, and I liked, yeah, I suppose, I, I wrote a bit, but not really, I wouldn't even say I wrote poetry per se, but I did, uh, I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was, Bob, but I had notebooks. Okay. So when you started writing songs, did you like start writing new lyrics or did you go back to your notebooks? I, I made, I wrote new lyrics at the time, yeah. Hmm. What is your writing process like and how has it evolved over the years? Well, it hasn't evolved. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it has. And so the process is, um, and I think it was that, I remember my, the very first song that I wrote uh -huh. ended up being on a Mendoza Line record. It was called A Bigger City. On like the New York. album, We're All in This Alone. And I just sort of chose a chord progression I liked and then went from there. So I'm going to guess that that song was about um, moving from Athens, Georgia to New York it City? It was. It was. So yeah. let's talk about Athens for a bit. Um, most music lovers in Belgium and Holland uh, will know Athens as a city where there's a great music scene. REMs from there, uh, the Vulgar Boatman from there, um, uh, Big Chestnuts big from chestnuts there. From yeah. there. So tell us a little bit about what the scene is like there and what, how it compares to New York City. Well, I haven't been back in years, um, and when I was there, I was an undergrad, and it was I I don't know if it was so different from. Hmm. I don't know what the what the scene is here, except that I was 20 years younger, you know? I know. Um, just a lot <laughs> of people collaborating, um, a lot of dive bars, <laughs> and just, but I, I suppose it was very easy to sort of get your foot in the door and, and yeah. play in a, in a small nice. club. Um, everyone was very inviting and welcoming. Um, I love Athens. Yeah, I want to go. Um, 
Now, you were in the Mendoza line at the time. Um, did it not get big until you guys got to New York? Or how did that go? Did it get really big? Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> bigger than it was. <laughs> so, yeah, I was, um, we were lucky. I, I think it was in 1999 um, when We're All in This Alone came out or when we finished recording it. And um, Bar None put it out. Uh, Bar None right. from Hoboken, New Jersey. So... Um, Glenn Morrow, I remember, met with Tim and me. And so this is back in the old days where you had to... Yep, you the went days of record met deals. ...at a bar and you talked about, uh-huh. like, well, so what are you going to do for me? What are you going <laughs> to do for me? Is there an advance? And there was actually an advance. Yeah, is there any money? I mean, I, like, I, this, you got paid. We got paid and we got told what studio to go to and with whom to work. And, um, yeah, it was a mm. different world back then. Right. How many records did you make with Bar None? Um, gosh, I think there were only two with Bar None, and then we moved on to Mizra Records. Right, and how many albums in total for the Mendoza line? Six, seven. That's I think a lot. eight total Mendoza line records. Oh, wow, so you actually have had a lot of studio time. I have. Do you enjoy working in the studio? I really do. I love working in the studio, and I love writing. Um, Performing is something that I have to warm up to, but then once I am in it, I'm enjoying it. But uh, I'd say, yeah, being in the studio is one of my favorite aspects of writing and being in music, yeah. Have you ever um, recorded something in the studio that wasn't planned, that you sort of came up with on the spot? Mm, And then suddenly said like, oh, this is on, or this should be on the record? Right. That's mm-hmm. a great question. Thank I know, you, Shannon. Um, it is. I can remember, and I'm not going to remember the song, but a couple of times having written a song during the time a record was being recorded and not intending to write another song and it ending up on there. Um, but not just on the fly like, hey, now <clears throat> this just came to my mind. I'm going to play you a little right. ditty and we're going to record it and it's right. going to go on the record. So back to the process, um, what do you need to be inspired or to be, say, comfortable to write? How does that work for you? I need my living room. I need to be reading something at the time. I'm constantly mm-hmm. stealing phrases. Um, I need turmoil. <laughs> okay, drama. You need drama. Tiny bit of drama. Um, and my acoustic guitar mm-hmm. and my iPad and I'm, I'm good that's how I do it these days okay do you have to be alone? oh yes you know because some people like to write in public or at a coffee shop or something like that oh no yeah. I can't imagine <laughs> I mean the dogs and cats are around but they don't judge I don't think hope not <laughs> Don't need to take it slow 
I am inspired by, this sounds cheesy, but through travel. Sure. Um, I'm inspired by other people's problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try, I try not to be really like to ex- expose them in my songs, but I'm certainly like, oh, well, this is an interesting predicament. I'm go- going to write about this. Um, I'm inspired by relationships between men and women and really playing around with um, who my who my narrator is in a song. Am I going from the male perspective point of view or the or a woman's or am I sort of leaving it ambiguous? Mm-hmm. Um, is it always uh, is it always a story? I feel maybe I feel almost that you can answer that better than me because I can't it's hard for me to I don't know. I, I think I would say probably a good 50% of my songs have a cer- certain narrative to them, for sure, yeah. Do you have a favorite song hmm. of your own? Hmm. Hmm. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, let me switch gears here for a second. Um, so you're a, a woman musician in a male-dominated industry and some women I've talked to who are musicians have told me that this is this is a very big problem that the way they've been treated and the way they're um, seen as musicians is very different um, how do you feel about I think that? I have mixed feelings too I think um, a lot I think insecurities come up as a result and I, I mean I'm sure I have them to begin with but um, I think I question my talent and my ability a lot and I oh really um I can remember being told early on like in the late 90s early 2000s that like uh, oh you have you have a pretty voice um and oh you write you write like a girl you write pretty lyrics or sweet lyrics um people say yep, you write, write like, like a, girl. a girl and I huh. and being in a band at that time with a co-singer songwriter um who was male and um also a male band Um, I certainly felt that my lyrics especially um, were seen as less intellectual as less meaningful as um, interesting I as just less thoughtful than my than my counterpart and I remember real frustration um, when reviews would come out and Uh I would feel that I was always compared to a female artist. Not that I didn't right. like whoever the female artist was. It was Liz Fair or or whomever. But yeah, I, mean, I see where you're going I love with Liz this. Fair. Um, but I feel that 
it's pretty clear who my influences are if you sort of take the woman out of it or oh there's a girl singing and really think about sort of mm -hmm. um, the progressions or the the melody or even sometimes you know uh, lyrical style um, and that would always really offend me um, I remember sure. Tim a lot of times being compared to you know Dylan or Costello I'm like my songs are more like Dylan or Costello's. <laughs> and um, they are. That, I think that's the hardest thing and the most frustrating thing is um, always just right. being kept in this small little category of female songwriters. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So, what does make your lyrics uh, more like Dylan's or Costello's? I think they're the reason I write. They're how I learn to write. Um, before I even thought about writing a song, I just would think, well, what would Costello do here? What would his harmony sound like? Um, that's really, he was probably my biggest influence in Dylan right after that, I'd say. Um, so just having right. grown up listening to Dylan and Costello, being fanatical about them in my college years, and just, that was the only thing I had to sort of go by when I started writing. What kind of music do you listen to mostly? Oh, old stuff. <laughs> um, I'm a big Springsteen fan. Um, Richard Thompson, of course. Um, Captain Beefheart. Um, Graham Parsons. Graham Parker. Um, Emmy Lou. Dolly. Are there any particular albums you're listening to a lot these days that the listeners may want to know about? Okay. Well, I... I've been obsessed with Vic Chestnut lately more than ever. I don't know why. He died, I don't know, five years ago. Um, and uh, there's a little-known album actually called Little, <laughs> which uh, is, is though most of his records are pretty hard to come by. This mm. one is uh, don't think I know quite it. hard to come by, although I'm sure you can get it on iTunes. Right. Um, so it's not hard to come by at all. Um, it's just so special, and it's so narrative, and it's so intimate and... Um, Cool. You should get it. I will. Modern love affair Completely cool and casual They hardly knew each other was there I mean, both of them had their own getting off to do And they had to dream about their own self when they were through But the modern girl was elated With what the revolution gave her And since she was liberated She could have everything that striked her fancy And she fancied quite a bit I mean, if it felt What do you see yourself doing next after this album? I think I never really think of, oh, the next record if I were to make another record, and I'm sure I will. I never think of it as, uh, as trying to take or make a huge departure from the last stylistically or lyrically or anything. Um, so 
my best answer is more of the same, um, although right. every album is different. Um, but I never really go at it thinking it's, it's going to be that different from the previous one. Oh, so you never think, oh, I would like to record something with an orchestra someday or something. Mm, well, that would be nice. Do you know one? <laughs> um, no, I think this, I had this fantasy of doing um, a duets record and then I couldn't get anyone to sing with me. <laughs> I mean, I'm ready, baby. I'll sing. All right. Next one. All right. So the next one's going to be uh -huh, duets. Uh -huh. I see where you're going. <laughs> um, okay. Um, let's talk about New York City. Your new album is a little bit about New York City in that you are sort of wondering whether this is like the place you want to stay for a long time. And you're musing about perhaps leaving or uh, trying to see if there is a better place for you. There's a song on the new record called, I don't remember what it is actually called, Why Do We Live Where We Do, I think, or Why Does Anybody Live where they do. Um, oh, that's actually on the record? It Good. is. It is, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and I think I just, I ask myself that question all the time. Why am I living here? But wh why would I be living somewhere else? Mm -hmm. Where do you want to live? What's the alternative? Um, and I think it just comes from often feeling dissatisfied, but not necessarily about my surroundings, but instead that I'm not sort of taking enough advantage right. of it. So every two years when my lease is about to expire, <laughs> I consider moving. And then I say, no, nah, then I have to get a car. And then I have to move. So I guess I'm going to stay here. And here we are 20 years later. What do you like about New York? I like Prospect Park. I like Brooklyn. I like, um, I like the ease. And I think a lot of people think of a big city as being a hassle. And I think that people who live in a city for a long time feel quite the opposite, that there's so much convenience that I'm not, I could go anywhere 24 hours a day, um, that everything seems so close and easy, easily accessible. But um, I think when I consider moving or ask myself, why do I live here? It's because I'm not taking advantage of how accessible the city is. And how much is is here you know art and music yeah. and um i'm notorious for not going to shows <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> yeah no i hear you because the longer you live here the more you start taking it for granted so it's it's easy to forget you know what's out there what are your favorite places in uh, by places what do we mean here like museums well, uh, surroundings, surroundings. Yeah, either um well, I love being in Prospect Park. Spent a lot of time there. Um, the East Village is oddly, um, it feels oddly like home to me. I lived there for only two years, but they were my first two years um, in New York. And um, though it's very, it's all NYU dorms now, um, some of my best friends still live there. And so I feel nostalgia um, whenever mm -hmm. I'm there. Uh, I love the new gallery. Um, I'm obsessed with Egon Schiele, and that's not how you pronounce his name, I'm sure. Um, but I could spend hours in that tiny place. Forget the minor incident. Forget the way you didn't really handle it. Don't sweat your moderate lies. Don't consider. 
Shannon. We're almost at the end of this interview and I always like to end with, not always, I'd like to end right now asking you what you are reading these days. Um, I just finished Hillbilly Elegy and I can't remember the author's name. Anyway, it's fantastic. Um, and I am, well, reading uh, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde for the 20th time. Um, I'm actually teaching it to my seniors, and it may oh. be voted the number one book in New York, right? Y- yeah, yeah, I saw that on the subway. I just looked it up. Um, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. What's it about? It's about hillbillies. Um, <laughs> as you know, I am um, doing the Appalachian Trail with my sister, like 100 miles at a time. When you say doing, you mean hiking. Hiking, yeah. hiking, yeah. Um, and we'll will be sort of in the Smokies um, this coming April. And uh, I just, the, the Appalachian Trail, it, it just sort of fascinates me, but also just the people we run into in the small towns around uh, the trail when we stop. You, you don't think of, it's about white, poor America. It's about how the majority, if you actually, you know, leave the coast, leave the big cities, there's a lot of impoverished white people everywhere, and it's a uh, one man's tale, and it's fascinating, especially about his meemaw. Is um, hillbilly a bad word? Um, J.D. Vance, uh, what he uses it, I think, lovingly. Um, I think it's more about um, sort of where someone's from and... Um, perhaps the kind of work they do or the uh, education that they have, but not, it's, I don't think it's insulting. I think it's, it hillbillies can be used call lovingly. themselves hillbillies? Um, he calls himself a hillbilly. Hmm. Um, that's a great question. I don't know. There's a lot of music associated yeah. with hillbillies, right? Is there anything that stands out for um, you? I'm th- I mean, I love the, the Flatlanders. I I think it's safe to call that hillbilly music because there's a lot of musical saw. Um, I love the musical saw. I yeah. once wanted to call my band the Flatlanders, but I realized it was taken. Yeah. And I'm from the Flatlands. Have you ever heard the Flatlanders? Not really, oh. but I'll, I'll start playing some for my uh, podcast audience. Great. Joe Ely um, was in the Flatlanders and um, Honky Tonk Masquerade, one of the best records ever, little known. I think this kind of music has gotten really popular in Belgium, especially after the movie um, Broken Circle Breakdown came out. Have you seen oh, yeah. that? Have you seen yeah. Yeah, uh, it's a Belgian movie. Well, my old shoes are laying on the floor because I ain't going to wear them no more. Many miles down many hard roads, but that's what shoes are for. The time has flown, and I've outgrown every shoe I ever wore. And I guess my bare feet will have to carry me one road more. Lord, I ain't got a lick of sense, I got a crazy mind. Cause I don't want to leave, and I don't want to stay behind. Well, at the end of this one last road, they say there's always an open door. Shannon, thank you for being thank here. Thank you for having me, Bob Van Pelt. This was really fun. It really was fun. I'm going to play some more of your music. 
And yeah, I'll uh, probably have you back one I day. I would love that. Please do. Okay. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao. luisteren alweer. We gaan eruit met um, een nummertje van de nieuwe plaat van Shannon McCardle, A Touch of Class. Uh, dit nummer heet The Grand Execution. Morgen is het concert. Hopelijk uh, luisteren jullie volgende week weer naar een nieuwe aflevering van New American, Nieuw Amerikaans met Bob van Pelt uit Brooklyn, New York. Ciao.